Greetings all. Welcome to Bear Talk. I'm David Bear, and today I'll be talking with Ethan Waters about his book, Crazy Like Us, The Globalization of the American Psyche. Ethan Waters is a journalist whose work focuses on the field of psychology. He's done a lot of uh, research, actually, on the topic and written a number of books uh, related to psychology. I read Crazy Like Us, his book Crazy Like Us, a couple of years ago, and, and honestly I found it one of the more interesting books I've read in recent years. The, Ethan's argument in the book is that uh, the American concept of psychological well-being and the American approach to uh, psychological illness is being exported around the world to different cultures in ways that aren't uh, always helpful. Here's a, I'll read a couple sentences from the introduction to the book just to give you a sense of the sort of main argument that he makes. Over the past 30 years, this is Ethan Waters, over the past 30 years, we Americans have been industriously exporting our ideas about mental illness. Our definitions and treatments have become the international standards. Although this has often been done with the best of intentions, we fail to foresee the full impact of these efforts. It turns out that how a people in a culture think about mental illness influences the diseases themselves. In teaching the rest of the world to think like us, we have been, for better or worse, homogenizing the way the world goes mad. So each chapter in the book is a kind of case study where Ethan describes how the American approach to psychology has impacted a different part of the world. In the first chapter, he talks about anorexia in Hong Kong and describes how anorexia suddenly started to appear in Hong Kong in the 1990s when it hadn't been there before. Uh, the second chapter talks about how Western psychologists imported the concept of PTSD to Sri Lanka after the 2004 tsunami. The third chapter talks about how schizophrenia is handled in uh, Zanzibar uh, differently than it's handled in, in, in the West. And the fourth chapter describes how uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, try to export a Western notion of depression to Japan uh, to help them sell uh, medicine. So anyway, the book is super interesting, and I invited Ethan to come on the podcast to talk about it. He agreed. Uh, and then we immediately fell into uh, a conversation. And so what I'm going to do is drop you into that conversation a little ways after we got started. You'll still get to hear most of it, uh, but I'll drop you in a little after the beginning. So here's Ethan Waters. To be a good journalist on a topic as complicated as this, I think you, have, you do have to have a background. And I've been writing about the effects of culture on the mind since I started writing, you know, over 30 years ago, uh, nonfiction-wise. But I don't know if you know my first book. My first book was with a sociologist at Berkeley. It was called Making Monsters, and it was about the recovered memory movement in the 90s, where mostly women by the thousands were going to therapy and uncovering what they believed were memories of being abused um, as children, and sometimes in the satanic cult settings. And our book was the first one, among a couple others, to say that these were probably not memories. These were a product of influence of the therapy and the times and that 
uh, not only the therapy, but the culture around us, right? So it was it was the Geraldo and the, the talk shows and all the books that were coming about uh, and the movies that were coming out on this. And this all had this remarkable way of impacting people's believed memories. So that was the start of it. So I did start my career writing about how impactful a therapy setting could be uh, for a patient. Um, and that led to, uh, I, I wrote another book about critic critiquing psychotherapy, went on to marry a psychiatrist, and then, uh, and then took a couple of years break, break from it. But I had these lasting curiosities about it that came from that first book. And one of them was about the uh, multiple personality disorder, because I, 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 I've been in rooms where people manifested their multiple personalities. Um, and it was clearly a situation where they were not faking it, even though I, I completely believe that multiple personality is an iatrogenic disorder, that it doesn't exist in all times and spaces and requires the therapy and the ideas around it to sustain it. Even though that's all true, it, it seemed to me what, what these people were manifesting was not not faking something, but real, but a real lived experience in some way. So that led to the question of like, okay, if that's true of this multiple personality disorder, which is really just like a blip in time, like it just existed for 10 years and now it's kind of mostly gone. To what extent is that true of other mental illnesses? To what extent do we, uh, when we become psychologically uh, disturbed, uh, disquieted, to what extent do we look to culture and the people around us and the healers around us to understand how to express that internal unease? So that's where, so, and then the short answer to the question is, there's two ways to look at it. One is to look across cultures to see how thing people express illness states in other cultures. And the other is to look across time and to see how even in Western culture, um, symptomologies might have changed over time. And once you do those two things, it becomes very convincing that um, mental illnesses are not a solid state thing. They do not exist in all times and places in the same percentages and, and same manifestations, that they're actually remarkably unique to given to particular cultures, particular times, and they are deeply influenced by the healers that step forward to um, try to help us. Okay, good. The what I the way I would summarize this book, right? This is crazy like us is that you you you're you're suggesting that um I don't know what we call it the sort of the medic the mental health industry yeah. is um uh, sort of uh, spreading its sort of ineffective or, or not the best ways of, of handling mental illness around the world. Right. So, but I, it's better if you summarize what you take the argument, uh, what you're trying to say the point of your book. So maybe you can just summarize, um, you know, what you think, what your argument is. Yeah. So whether it's, um, so, you know, we are, you know, um, in terms of the ideas about mental health, we are, un, you know, America is undoubtedly the the globalizing force. Like we spend the most money researching these topics. We spend the most money on drugs. You know, all you know, the major research centers are all here. And to an extent, um, we feel like uh, it's part of our job is to reach out to the rest of the world and to share that knowledge. And we do it oftentimes really with the best of intentions. Like it would, you know, if you believed you actually had uh, a way of helping depressed people with, um, you know, uh, 
antidepressant drugs, it would be morally dubious if you withheld that knowledge from the rest of the world. But the, tr but the problem is, is that we have not taken into account culture and how culture affects uh, not only illness states, but how we become healthy again. So um, I took four examples in the book. All, all examples were places where I thought I could, I could really document something in transition. Um, so one chapter was about um, post-traumatic stress in Sri Lanka before and after the tsunami. Um, you know, horrible devastation, devastating tsunami. Um, afterwards, uh, um, you know, American mental health professionals of all stripes decided that it was their, you know, duty to go there and help Sri Lankans understand what PTSD was. And they did so without understanding the religion of the culture, the culture of, you know, um, basically the, the language. They just assumed that their knowledge was that, that we in America you know, like the least traumatized culture in, you know, recently in the world would probably be able to tell the Sri Lankans who have, you know, who have suffered, you know, horrible devastations and, and, uh, and civil wars that we would be able to tell them what um, PTSD was about. So the mistake I think we make is not that we're doing something evil or for the wrong reason. The mistake we're making is we're not understanding that these things often don't translate. And indeed, to the extent that we have something to teach the rest of the world, potentially about um, the, the value of certain medications, the rest of the world has something to teach us about the way in which they treat mental illness, the way, the way, way in which they see things like schizophrenia or PTSD or uh, anorexia, that we have a lot to learn from the rest of the world. Um, so it's, it's not a matter of like the evil psychiatrists and mental health professionals I have tremendous respect for this for the profession, um, but when it comes to understanding the cultural impact on mental illness, we we just don't get it. And, and it seems to me like even if we look at within our own culture, like every generation of psychiatrists um, seems to go down some rabbit hole. Um, you know, you can think of lobotomies or electroshock or the recovered memory fad or you know even back to, you know, ways women were treated with, you know, that had hysteria, you know, they, there's some, there's some fantastic fad in every generation, even in the West and American psyche, psychiatry and mental health profession, they don't seem to look in the rear view mirror that much. They don't seem to look back and say, gosh, you know, we get, we need to learn something from like how we went down that, that rabbit hole. And maybe there's something we need to take into account for this next generation. Okay, so let that. So okay, good. So the um, so one of the impressions I when I read the book is you know you have the different chapters and it yeah. and it seems to me that you have um, kind of a complex argument. So different chapters uh, make or it seemed to me we're making different different points, right? So the the, yeah. the result is you get a kind of a, a complex a sort of complete picture, but it seemed to me that you had several points. Uh, yeah. so, so maybe so. The first chapter on anorexia is really, uh, really just made made an impression on me. It's it's a kind of a really powerful story. So I don't know, if maybe could you just sort of run through or summarize sure. kind of the story there in that first chapter? Yeah, you're very you're very right. I I did choose those different chapters and those different illnesses because I I didn't you know you could write a whole book about how the American drug industry is the driving force in globalizing globalizing how people think about mental illness, um, but that 
you know, I didn't want to hit that beat again. So I look for different vectors um, for different ways in which these ideas spread into other cultures. And for the anorexia chapter, um, I, I focus on the research of a, of, of, a, of a psychiatrist in Hong Kong named Sing Lee. Um, and he had been looking for anorexia in Hong Kong. He was trained in the West, went back to Hong Kong, decided to, 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 to see where anorexia was in Hong Kong, basically went through, you know, tens of thousands of medical records early in his career could find about six cases of this of this illness in Hong Kong. But then, um, and, and interestingly enough, that the the way those illnesses were expressed were different than the American version of anorexia. It didn't tend to have fat phobia or body dysmorphia. Um, it wasn't, uh, it didn't seem to be a, about um, losing weight or it didn't, it didn't come from this population of trying to be perfect. It came from this sort of, it had this sort of um, particular Hong Kong uh, expression. But then in um, the early 90s, um, there, was a, there was a single death of a girl who was walking down a, a street in Hong Kong, a very busy uh, downtown street. And um, she, uh, she was clearly an anorexic. She fainted and she died on the street. And because she sort of died in this public way, there was this enormous amount of press interest in what happened to her. And people wanted to know the obvious answers to the obvious questions, which were, you know, what is this, what is this illness? Like what causes it, you know, who's in danger of it. And because of those questions, um, you know, a lot of the journalists in Hong Kong uh, turned to American experts who described to them this American version of what anorexia was. It happens to this type of girl. It has these sort of symptomologies. And suddenly, like, it was really all over the the papers. Like, it was a big, big topic of discussion in Hong Kong. Um, And remarkably, after that, you saw this rise of this American version of Hong Kong. So the case I make in that book is that press attention and the the way experts become sources for people like me and talk about illnesses in other cultures um, can actually be a way in which you put a symptom into what, what, what Edward Shorter likes to call a symptom pool. And a symptom pool is sort of the, the, the symptoms at a given place in time that are understood to be valid. Uh, and his case is that these symptoms pools change over time and you can you can affect the symptom pools by simply uh, focusing on one symptom. Another great example would be, you know, bulimia as, you know, the rise of bulimia in the UK after Princess Di um, began to sort of publicly come out and talk about the disorder. Like suddenly you had this enormous rise of this, of this particular symptom. Some of which obviously can be um, because like, because she was talking about it, other people could talk about it. But, but the other possible reason is that, uh, young women who wanted to express their distress suddenly saw this this incredibly powerful um, public figure, like under get, like like show you know begin to display these symptoms. Okay, so let me let, so that's the the symptom pool thing is quite interesting. So they're just because I I was trying to uh, explain this idea to some friends uh, talking about the book and they didn't they they didn't they weren't convinced. So the 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 uh, so the first thing in this in the Hong Kong or the uh, case of anorexia, there's two, sort of two things. First, there weren't very many cases, I guess, in the right. 80s. And second, the cases, they were eating disorders, but they didn't have the same symptoms. So they didn't have the kinds of symptoms that we 
associate with anorexia in the West. They had, right. uh, they didn't have uh, the fat image and, or the, the skin or whatever. They didn't have the same, they had different kinds of physical symptoms. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is when, when this famous incident happened or the, and everyone started to learn about anorexia in Hong Kong, then there started to be a lot more cases of anorexia Right. And they presented with the Western symptoms, with a different sort of right. set of symptoms. Right. So uh, and so you explain that or you're drawing on this other uh, theorist uh, as uh, there's a symptom pool and the so you can correct me if I'm wrong. And, and right. the patient uh, doesn't consciously but sort of unconsciously selects from the symptom pool as a way of communicating the psychological distress. So in other words, there are certain kinds of symptoms that will be recognized as uh, so that the doctors will recognize and they sort of select somehow unconsciously. Is that, right. is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, and they often go along with a, a, a theory about the mind uh, or a theory about the body. Like, um, you know, where, you know, a, a lot of people in the East somaticize uh, what we would think of as a mental illness, you know, find, you know, disquiet, like disquiet in the, the heart or feeling of pressure inside or unease in the gut. And that's, you know, that is built on these ideas of like their ideas of medicine and their ideas of how the body works. Same way going back in, you know, to things like shell shock, there was the notion that like there were the, 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 the we were basically wired and the wires fray and that that's why you had certain sort of physical symptoms. I mean, like, so, know, Edward, so, the, so the question then is, uh, in, in the, in they're not consciously selecting these symptoms, right? How do they know exactly. that these are the symptoms that they should, I mean, because it, 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 it sounds like if you're not sympathetic, oh, they're just faking it, or, oh, I want to get attention, so I'll, I'll manifest, I'll present these symptoms. So how, does, how do they learn about yes. the symptoms? This is a particularly hard thing for Americans, and I think, because we have this such a belief in the in the individual nature of our own mind, you know, that we believe it exists apart from culture, and it feels, you know, it feels that way. That's the story we tell about us. But you're exactly right. This is the the most critical thing. Uh, one, it, the critical thing is this does happen unconsciously. This is not something the patient doesn't choose the symptom. Um, and yeah, and I, I mean, I, I can, I, you know, I, I can, I have a little quote from Edward Shorter that I'm looking at right now, and this is from his book on the history of psychiatry, and, and this is how Shorter explains it. He says that patients unconsciously endeavor to produce symptoms that will correspond to the medical diagnostics of the time. This sort of cultural molding of the unconscious happens imperceptibly and follows a large number of cultural cues that the patients simply are not aware of. So. The reason it's worth writing a book about this topic uh, is to, you know, because it is a very difficult thing because because it's such an ambient thing. It, it, culture exists around us. It's just the water we swim in, right? We don't. Um, so you know, and, but it all adds up in our in our unconscious mind. It, we get these clues from from everywhere, from people we talk to, from um, from the doctors we visit, to the books we read, to the movies we watch, to like it's just everywhere. And you need a lot of time to sort of begin to sort of piece together, like this is how um, it changes. But, you know, I think it becomes a little clearer when you jump across time. So you can go back to hysteria in yeah. the late 1800s. Yeah, and that's a good 1900s. example. So it's, it's, this was a, a, a disorder that was just everywhere in Europe and America. Like it was just um, so common. Uh, and it included these really... Um, bright symptoms like sensitivities to touch and 
fainting and uh, sort of grotesque body movements and twitches. And like, it was a very clear when you were manifesting hysteria. So suddenly this disorder is there, bright as can be, accepted by every doctor. Like if the AP, you know, if the uh, APA was making the DSM at the time, it would be, you know, just a clear disorder, right? It had all these ways of, of, um, of, and it had all these theorists that talked about why this, why we behaved in this way. So it had a whole apparatus of thinking around it. But then 20 years later, it's virtually gone. You know, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't exist in the same way. It sort of sort of trails out. So that's an example. When you look back in time, you can kind of see like, oh, these symptoms were accepted as legitimate for a time. The doctors all accepted them. Everyone, you know, you could tell that, tell the story to your family. You, you, they would understand. Everyone knew what it was. Everyone thought it was real. And the key thing to remember is that it was real. Like it's not a matter of people going into a doctor and faking those symptoms. It's a matter of our unconscious mind internalizing the language of suffering for a given time and place. And just as we don't, we, we, we speak the language, you know, we speak the language that could be understood on this, you know, talking to you. Um, in the same way, we, we you know, we, we unconsciously are drawn to, you know, the, the, the symptoms and signs that when we need to express an internal distress and okay, we just so don't display the ones we just don't go back and suddenly display the ones from 100 years ago we talk about you know symptoms that make sense in our in our given time and we feel those symptoms yeah so you have this uh and i think in that chapter i'm going to read this line or quote or a couple sentences you're talking about i think it's anorexia and you say such a dynamic which is this sort of what we've been talking about such a dynamic makes the official public naming of a disease such as anorexia a perilous event it is clear to shorter that's this uh, researcher you're referring to it is clear to shorter that psychiatrists and physicians themselves have long been key pliers in validating which new disorders or behaviors appear in the symptom pool so in other words yeah. one of the arguments that seems to come out in that chapter is that i mean maybe you can correct me it's almost as if they created i mean it's maybe an overstatement but the psychiatrist or the public naming or the publicity that that surrounded anorexia sort of generated or created that that illness in hong kong is right. that right it, it created the validity of those symptoms so and, and in Hong Kong at the time, you had a really un, uh, a population that was a little bit unstuck. This was like right at the time when the British were handing over rule to back to China. A lot of families were emigrating from the culture. There was, you know, was, there were roles for women were really quickly changing. Um, so there was a lot of sort of, I think, I think Sing Lee had a name for this, like a sort of ambient level of psychopathology. So there was a lot of people that were unsure and unclear. And a lot of those were young women who were you know, particularly unsure because their roles were changing at the same time, a culture was changing very quickly. And so there was some, you know, a lot of people looking for ways, a lot of people feeling distress, right? And then you look for ways to, to communicate that distress and your mind unconsciously, again, will go to the things that seem to be understood at the time. So yes, the public naming and sort of you know, the new disorder of, of the day, you know, for, um, you know, you could think about suicidality too with teens or cutting or things like that. When you give it publicity, when you talk about it in a way, when you tell stories of like, you know, descent into, into suicidality and then a heroic rise, like you are making 
a story for other teens to potentially follow. And you can see that. You can see teen suicide clusters. You can see that cutting often goes in clusters. Um, so you got to be very careful when you talk about these things that you're not actually uh, encouraging one symptom or, over another. This is not to say that you're making people, you're not causing the underlying distress. You're potentially putting a set of, of of set of new symptoms in front of so, them. So that, that so that's my question. So in a yeah. sense, if you, um, if you create the symptom pool, the cutting or the, the suicidal thoughts or, or, or the anorexia, then um, you're making, it sounds like you're saying, actually, if you're not careful, you're actually making these people worse off than they would have been if you hadn't named this illness. Right. But, but yeah, it's a little more complicated. It's more, okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. The, the fact that I think this is all very true, that symptoms change over time and people recognize this does not mean like there's no silver, silver bullet here. There's no way of saying, oh, if we just didn't talk about mental illness, for instance, or we didn't, we didn't name symptoms or something that the illness itself would go away. I think um, these are symptoms of something else that's underlying it. So I think perhaps, you know, you could learn a few things. I mean, anorexia is a devilishly difficult thing to cure once a kid goes down or a young person goes down that route. It's really, really hard to cure. So maybe, I mean, certainly I would advise, and there are, are other people, experts that advise that when you go to the school, like if you're going to go to a school program and talk about anorexia, you need to be very careful about how you talk about it because you don't want like some girl in the back of the room to suddenly like, be leaning a little into that because she's feeling, you know, depressed or anxious or, or, or upset. Um, so you're right. It's not a matter of like, if we don't talk about these things, these, this won't happen, but it is, uh, I think incumbent upon the mental health profession to like, at least look across history and realize how much their pronouncements do matter in terms of shaping the next generation of, 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 of illness. And I think that the lesson here is not, you know, don't do it and this will go away. The lesson here is like, hmm, what is the, what is, you know, that, that is the, that is kind of the point. My wife is a psychiatrist and she did, you know, she, she has dealt with uh, anorexic and every now and then she would ask me, well, you know, I'm going to go in and see this anorexic patient. Like, what does your research tell me about that interaction? And it's, um, it's a difficult thing to draw a clear, like, and then we should do this lesson from. Um, right. But then on, of course, it's a, I mean, in this day and age, everyone can go on the internet. Any, 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 anyone can go on the internet and, or a teenager who's, who's worried and, and just sort of learn about every, every yeah. incredible, you know, crazy symptom or illness so that it's very, it's very plausible to me that, that uh, it's even probably easier to pick up on these, uh, whatever cultural cues now with all yeah. the information. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess the idea is that the, the people are still under the, the distress is authentic, but somehow the expression of it um, is shaped by the, the ambient culture. And, and so there's a risk there that um, you could make it worse or one could make yeah. it worse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly anorexia is, you know, is worse than other, other symptoms. Um, and, and, to, and also to be clear, I wanted, and, and not just picking on the, I mean, that's like the, the chapter on anorexia, anorexia really puts the onus on like people who write about these things. I mean, um, I, I think they're as much responsible for spreading, you know, not, the journalists like nothing better than the new disorder. So when bulimia came on, on the scene, 
when cutting comes on the scene, um, they love, you know, like, let's talk about that. Let's write a bunch of stories about that. Let's do a, a PBS, you know, a special. Um, so, you know, we really do this as a culture, um, you know, and I think, yeah, so it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not simply, it doesn't simply come from the mental health profession, although I think that their theories of the mind tend to be that the sort of the, the root but from which these trees grow. All right, well, let's, okay, so that it's a little bit of a puzzle there. Okay, but, but anyway, this idea of a symptom pool and so forth, I, I think is uh, very convincing to me, although I couldn't convince other people. And, <laughs> and, and the, uh, uh, the, the example of hysteria, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, or essentially is, but it once did. I mean, that, that, uh, that's a good example. But, so let's go to another chapter here. Uh, you have the chapter, which seems to me to make a different point. So I think that maybe the, somehow the point I got out of the first chapter on anorexia is that there's a real danger that uh, psychiatrists or mental health people can actually make a situation worse. I mean, that was maybe that's too uh, overreading, but that was kind of what I that was the lesson I got out of that. They can create a symptom pool and. I mean, I can give a, before we go, I just give it a sort of example. I don't have the same in my own case. So I, I teach ethics, right? At university yep. and a standard issue that you could deal with in ethics is you could deal with is suicide. And sometimes you read uh, things and you, someone so committed suicide and there's, or, you know, romanticizes about suicide and, and uh, there are philosophical arguments in defense of suicide. And I basically just decided I didn't want to teach. I just wasn't going to teach this because I, I, uh, I was afraid that if I teach this, there'll be some uh, student, even if I'm sort of objective and there, I, uh, there'll be some somebody who might just hear that because I don't know what's going on with the students and sort of be encouraged to try to commit suicide. So I just don't like to touch it. And then if I do, I always I always do it in a very. In a, in a way that makes it clear that I suicide is, you know, I'm not, is wrong or so don't do yeah. it. Or so, yeah. so I don't really teach that topic. Uh, I, I, think that, that's, I think that's really wise. Yeah. Uh, honestly, like, you know, we have, I live in San Francisco with a couple hundred people a year jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and, and you know, the newspapers and I think generally made a pack where we're not going to, we don't, we don't put it in the paper the next day when someone jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge because it's simply uh you know, it, 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 it just encourages the behavior a, a, a bad. There are ways to talk about this that, that help. Um, but, you know, just the possibility of unintentionally sending someone down that slippery slope. And I think it, I think it's pretty wise to, you know, not unless you're really going to do it well and, and really going to. And know the, reach, know reach the out students. Yeah, yeah no, because you just do it yeah. in a classroom. You don't really know. I mean, if you never, so it just, it's, a, I think, anyway, so I don't. I, I, I agree. Yeah. I, but I'm avoiding, I mean, I, I'm not, uh, I'm sort of avoiding the thing maybe a little bit like, you you know, I, uh, like kind of like you did with the, which was, are they making it worse? You can't talk about it or you should, there's some mental distress there. Anyway, I don't know how to handle it completely. So I just sort of avoid it, but sure. all right. So that's just an aside. Let, let's go to the, this other chapter. I mean, they're all, all the chapters are, are, are interesting, but the one on schizophrenia, uh, you talk about uh, the way schizophrenia is, is treated or handled in Africa. And it, the reason I, we could just focus on that a little bit is that it seems to be quite a different point or, or, or a, a much yeah. different point in that chapter than in the first chapter about anorexia. So maybe you just run through the, you know, the sort of run through the idea in that chapter, what you were talking about in the chapter about uh, schizophrenia yeah. in Africa. So I, I think the, the the way that chapter began for me was, was the, you know, this enormous uh, WHO study that 
basically looked at outcomes of people with schizophrenia. So, and they looked across the world, you know, multiple site studies, thousands of patients, and they they looked, you know, not only for remission of schizophrenia, which sometimes happens, but they looked at other variables, like does the person have a job? Does the person um, is the person still connected to their family, or you know, do they get married? You know, um, all these other variables to to, to to find out, like how 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 do people do in different cultures with schizophrenia? And what they found was that by a significant degree, people in the West with schizophrenia did worse. Um, so here you have this remarkable statistic, which suggests that like the cultures, and particularly in America, cultures that put the most money, have the most access to the drugs, have the most knowledge, arguably, on this disorder, the patients are doing worse. They have let you know they're they're most like more likely to be institutionalized. They're more likely to be not outside of their families. They're more likely not to have a job. On and on and on. So, pretty much every outcome we were doing worse. So the question is like, you know, what's going on here? So I, I found a really remarkable anthropologist named Julie Magruder who had studied this exact question uh, over a, a decade in Zanzibar. Um, and uh, I you know, traveled with her down there to, to understand the research she was doing. And her main case is that people um, that she tracked in Zanzibar tended to do better if they had less connection to Western notions of schizophrenia. Um, and, you know, and she connected it a little bit to you know, notions of spirit possession in the culture, um, which are totally like ubiquitous, they're totally common. The idea that spirits can can alight in your mind and 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 influence your actions, cause you to be angry or to act differently, um, and pretty much everyone believes that about themselves. Everyone believes that about other people, and oftentimes the the, the experience of schizophrenia was framed within that uh, that understanding of the mind. So it was almost as if they were saying. Uh, these people that are acting this way are like us because they're possessed with spirits. They're like us, but only more so. So they were on a continuum of like, they weren't like a different, they, you know, I think in the West, we tend to, once someone walks across that diagnostic line to schizophrenia, they're really the other, you know, they're not like us anymore at all. Um, and, and the way in which religious notions were tied into notions of schizophrenia in Zanzibar kept that ill individual within the, within the us, within the more like us. So they tended, you know, they tended to have a little more willingness to understand the mind as being not under your control always, you know, and, and it was the culture that under, that had an understanding of this in the West, the idea of the mind not being under your control is something we just really can't stand. Like we don't like the idea at all that, you know, that, that culture is in control of our mind or that there might be symptom pools, you know, like this is something we, we feel we have this, what is called in the profession, an internal locus of control. We believe that, you know, our mind is the captain of the ship that just is driving us through and we're making the choices and we're not, you know, overly influenced by other people or other think other ways of thinking. And our unconscious mind is not picking up cultural cues. Um, and there's, um, so, so that was basically the idea and, uh, that, that people in Zanzibar had a, 
sort of a more expansive view of how the mind can work. And part of that had to do with the notions of spirit possession and they could, they could, they could use those, that cultural story. I don't, I don't particularly believe in spirit possession, but they could use that cultural story as a way of keeping that ill individual within the normal. And uh, the story that we have in the United States is, is really uh, a different story. So, but in terms of the people who have schizophrenia in Zanzibar, I mean, the, the symptoms are basically similar, right? It's the same, there's not a different symptom pool in that case, or is there? Um, so yeah, if you, if you tease it apart, it would, yeah, uh, you would have more uh, religious. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, fantasies, uh, more, more, more religious illusions. You'd have like it would have it would have a slightly different expression, um, but it's a st- still as severe an Ill- illness. Like it's not, yeah. So they're all right. So the content of your, if you're hearing voices or you're seeing right. them and the, what the voices are saying will be different right. or what you, but, but it's still that same sort of set of, I, I don't know what the symptoms are exactly, but hear voices, visions and so forth. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, yeah. The, the, the central symptom is, is that, uh, is that voice in your head that seems to be an, an uh, not from you. That's the, that's the other uh-huh. voice uh-huh. that it can be uh, uh, really distressing as it is often like an extremely critical voice. So yes. So in that, that is, that is similar in both those cases. What that voice is saying clearly culturally constructed and influenced mm-hmm. but more so, importantly the, mm-hmm. the, the, the how the, the, the reason the reason I wrote about that schizophrenia was it was more on the how people around you treated you and the effect of that and that was culturally different in Zanzibar than it was in the West so the way I yeah what I when I read that chapter what I got out of it so you can see this is is that basically people it seemed they're just more tolerant of um, you know, slightly, I don't recall them kooky people, right? So if you, if you, if you exhibit in, in Zanzibar, these sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, I don't know, it, what we would call crazy behavior or very, very delusional, uh, unusual, yeah. delusional yeah. behavior, uh, they could somehow, all right, you know, he's, this person's whatever possessed by his spirit or has a whatever, but, and we can deal with it. So yeah. they're, they're more tolerant uh, and less, less atten- They don't not as interested in controlling it, I suppose. That's uh, right. So, so there, the the lesson. If that's right, the lesson seems to seem to be that that more flexible uh, uh, approach, or more tolerant or accepting approach of, I guess, deviance, um, uh, made the disease less less harmful, or at least less destructive for uh, for. Exactly, it it allowed you know when when a person went into remission, it allowed them sort of more space to retake their place, whatever that place might be in a family or a job. Um, it, it, and in general, it allowed more tolerance for uh, for the disease state. Exactly, and it, I think it just the fundamental point. The thing that it really brought brightly out for me was the way in which, it, in the West, we tend when we think of someone as mentally ill, we think of them. This might be putting it too strongly, but it's just not human anymore. That they're you know that they should be able to control their behavior, whether, whether that. And that goes across illnesses from you know, depression to anxiety to, you know. Uh, but we're OCD, scared like, of, when we're scared of somebody. You hear someone that's schizophrenia, then you're scared. And, yeah. and you want to, I think that, you know, whereas it sounded like you're not, they weren't really so scared. They just said, oh, I don't know, the person's got a spirit or something. And, and it didn't scare them as much. 
I think it scares well, it scares us in two different ways. Yeah. One is like just the just the weirdness of being around someone who's hearing voices or seeing something and worrying that they might be violent. The second reason it scares us is it so undercuts our own notion of the control of our mind. You know, like so if we see someone you know sort of unable to control their thoughts. Um, we don't want to think of ourselves as as in any way potentially subject to that. So we like uh-huh. really, really push them away uh, um, and, uh, and think of them as, as, as not, not like us at all. And I think that whether you're, you're, you remain in the group, you're one of us, or whether you're on the other side of the line and like a different creature really has a lot of impact on the outcomes over time. So, and I think that's true for, for all, all mental illnesses. And I think that's one of the sort of culturally speaking, that's one of those sort of big mistakes we make is we, is we need to um, treat people who go through any of these illnesses as, as like us, you know, only more so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, right. But so then would you, it sounds like for just with schizophrenia, there is a more, I don't know how to say it, but there's a more of an objective sort of biological I mean, this would be my impression, thought, uh, you know, before I read the book, there's with schizophrenia, there's a kind of a, it's more like having, you know, a heart, heart disease or cancer or something than say anorexia. So that somehow the social, there, there's an objective biological uh, element to schizophrenia in a more, I don't know, discreet way than with. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear that that's true, um, especially from. You know, these things tend to run in families, you know, they tend to show up at a certain time of life. There's something, there's something that's clearly sort of, you know, happening in the, in the brain that makes you prone to this. It's not about an external trauma usually, although, you know, times of stress or trauma can kick it off for some people. Um, but it, you're right. There is something um, more like a mental medical illness about schizophrenia, but because the outcomes seem to be so different, it's really worth, you know, considering cultural, you know, cultural notions of how we think about this as well, because we're not doing as well as we should, given all the resources we have to help people. This is a case where we need to not take our knowledge to another culture and, and tell them how to treat this illness. We need to learn from that other culture how to treat this illness. Like this is a place where the rest of the world has something to teach us, not the other way around. Okay, so let's let's go to one more. Um, so a, a way I'm reading it so you, uh, is that the first chapter uh, on anorexia really emphasized or highlighted the this symptom, this way we can kind of make things worse so we can if not create the, well, create maybe this particular illness if not, but not create the psych underlying distress. The, the, the schizophrenia chapter seemed to me to be that we, we have an objective illness, but we can handle it better or worse. They may handle it better. Yeah. But then you have the discussion of the pharmaceutical companies um, right. in the last chapter, which the lesson I got out of it um, is that we can also just do bad science. <laughs> or, uh, so yeah. maybe just run through quickly the, 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 the deal with the, the point you make in the chapter about the pharmaceutical companies. Right. So this was uh... This was taking, uh, looking at Japan uh, and the re- sort of remarkable rise of, um, of depression in Japan after uh, GlaxoSmithKline came in and got the exclusive rights to promote Paxil in, um, in Japan. And this was, you know, in some ways, the, you know, the most obvious chapter um, because you, they did an incredibly good job of 
going in and you know before you know before in, in Japan before Paxil was widely distributed um, depression was really was was considered a very severe illness in Japan and very few people sort of described um, you know their sadness as depression um, in fact you can make the case that Japanese culture has a sort of unique embrace of the aesthetic and feeling of sadness like they it's it's woven into their stories into their uh culture into their religious beliefs like that the sadness is a deeply respected state in japan uh, or or it was and then um then you had these outliers very few people would have severe depression oftentimes requiring hospitalization um and then GlaxoSmithKline came in and started to promote uh you know depression as the cold of the soul. So that was that was actually the phrase they used in their marketing. So this is the idea that it's like, what do you do when you have a cold? If you have a cold, you take a cold medicine. What do you do if you feel sad? Well, here's here's a medicine for you to help you not feel as sad, right? So, um, so they went into a culture that was sort of uniquely, uh, you know, could would uniquely embrace the notion of sadness and sold them this idea that it was actually like having a cold. And then, and Paxil sales just, uh, you know, rose remarkably as did the diagnosis of, of depression. Now, to give pa- Paxil and GlaxoSmithKline some credit here, um, Japan had a pretty high suicide rate before they came in. And during the time the Paxil was rolled out in Japan, um, suicide rates, you know, leveled off, I think de- declined slightly. Um, so this was a, clearly a matter of like Paxil wanting to sell or GlaxoSmithKline wanting to sell a lot of antidepressants in Japan. Um, but in the process, maybe they, you know, had, the, they did some good here. They, they okay. maybe. So the one thing it seemed like you kind of, in your summary, you may left out, or at least is that the, the medicine didn't really work. Right. Or it doesn't, it wasn't, right. the, the science didn't demonstrate that they, they, they tinkered with the science. So they didn't do the, yeah. the double blind studies and they didn't do the, they didn't, yeah. They couldn't repeat or whatever. They didn't do good research and, or they discussed it. Right. And so they made the medicine seem more helpful than it really was. Yeah. There, there, it is really worth looking into because it, it um, you know, uh, antidepressants tend to have some decent effect on the severely depressed. The, the, the science around its effectiveness overall is very um, iffy um, and with a lot of studies being sort of spiked and a lot of studies um, showing only a placebo effect. And really disturbingly, a lot of studies showing that um, it can increase suicidality. So you're kind of rolling the dice on that. Um, It's also uh, a lot more addictive. The withdrawals from um, something like Paxil are a lot more severe than um, has been widely understood or advertised. It's it's not a really benign drug. Um, So yeah, so the science, you know, the science was bad in America. It was brought to Japan. you know, promoted with this really, really sophisticated grassroots, you know, where they pulled all the levers, you know, they got the celebrities to do it. They created these sort of what looked like um, sort of uh, customer base uh, websites of people, you know, talking about the effectiveness of it. They did, they did all the right things and in a very quick order, like got a lot of people to take this drug, which as you say, is, as, uh, this, you know, the, the science that it is a cure-all for, um, that it works, 
uh, honestly, on a lot of people is very suspect. And then you have this sort of weird thing where you're you're actually, you know, getting you know, Japan to think more like Americans in terms of sadness. You know, sadness in America is not a, 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 an emotional state that we embrace culturally. It's, we feel like it's something that we shouldn't be experiencing. It's something we should get away from. We've tended to sort of lump in things like um, grief into notions of depression and grief is, uh, you know, a universal human thing that can be um, experienced uh, very deeply in a, in a very meaningful way. And we tend, and we're suddenly sort of um, lumping that in with, you know, depressed states. So, um, Okay, so that, so you got maybe there's this point here that you're making that uh, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are sort of changing. So that's your sort of point about cultural sensitivity. Uh, they're changing the Japanese culture. They were they were trying to change in a way that let them, uh, you know, sell their medicine, but it, it, the changes were actually either not good or at least not respectful. And then the other issue is that if they if we did things like, uh, uh, you know, had better peer review and or corrected these things with the pharma, uh, took this sort of research out of the hands of the pharmaceutical company, that would be another way, sort of independent of your cultural point of just yes. uh, uh, addressing this problem. Yes, you agree. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think that the, the studies around a lot of uh, uh psychiatric medications have been a virtual uh, scandal uh, and it has a lot to do with, um, you know, these companies themselves funding this research um, has a lot to do with um, the people, you know, doing the research, you know, uh, benefiting from the the positive result. Um, And then it's a lot to do with like how this research goes from like a research paper to, you know, one result and then goes through a whole PR mechanism and comes out as, you know, uh, this drug is remarkably effective and oftentimes it's not. And um, it's really am- amazing when you think of it because lithium was rolled out in what, like 1972, uh, pretty effective medication for bipolar um, disorder, um, really could even people out. It seemed like, you know, what are we now? Like almost 50, coming up on 50 years later, uh, and it's not, you know, the, 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 the drugs that we've promoted for all of these, uh, these disorders have sort of proven like remarkably not as effective as we would like. The progress has not been what you would think it would be given, you know, the lithiums, uh, you know, the start with lithium 50 years ago. Okay, so and let's jump back then to this point about American culture, the American version of suffering versus the, the which is in that chapter. You're talking about the American versus uh, version of suffering versus Japanese. You know, um, uh, I, I, it was many years ago, but I read this book. I don't know, maybe you would have heard it, Lincoln's Melancholy, because it was a, oh, yeah. a, a it's he was a, kind of another psycho- psychologist or something writing, yeah. and it, it's about. I mean, it's been years since I read it, and I can't remember the author. But the the you know, in Lincoln's day, he had the you know they talked about you, you were sort of born with certain dispositions and so Lincoln had the melancholy he's just sort of a kind of depressed unhappy or sort of sad melancholy person and that was according to the guy in the book said well that was sort of 
people accepted that in America that there were there were just some people were melancholic and some were you know whatever happy and this his argument was that or one argument that I recall from that book is that this this sort of American culture we have today where you have like a sort of like if you're not really happy there's something wrong with you um I, I don't know that's a more recent thing maybe I, I you know that's um, interesting yeah that might that might be a post-war post post-world war ii pretty recent well my yeah, guess would yeah. be it would, i mean i for i used to wrestle when i was and if you ever uh you know wrestling i don't know is basically a sport that's built around a sort of glorification of suffering i mean you're supposed yeah. to just be very stoic and yeah. that you get that you just get that drummed into you uh and that's a, i mean i think it's an okay way of dealing with personally uh uh you know hardship but you know I'm, um but that's even in america i'm not that old so that's in american culture this sort of uh uh I don't know, more stoic or a different sort of attitude towards suffering. So, I mean, could it be that the pharmaceutical companies are changing the American understanding of suffering? I mean, where does this come from, this sort of like, you always have to be happy? Uh, yeah, no, it's a really good point. Uh, stoicism is definitely out. Um, <laughs> the idea of like, you know, suffering as a way towards wisdom is out. Um, we are encouraged to see a wider and wider number of things events, encounters likely to make us ill. This is like, we are um, psychologizing our whole culture. And I don't, again, I think that does come from like the mental health profession, but I think it comes from culture at large as well. Like we are not, um, you know, we've medicalized so many sort of psychological states that used to be considered part of being human, like, you know, grief, pain, loss, stoicism, like all these things that, um, and now, now we see them as, as potential illnesses or things that will cause us harm over time. I think PTSD, which is the other chapter in the book yeah, yeah, uh, right. is, is, is really the, the best example of that. Uh, um, we see more and more, you know, the, the idea of what can kick off PTSD is just expanded and expanded, um, uh, over time and and now it's 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 just ubiquitous everyone can claim you know post-traumatic stress disorder over some event in their life um and 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 do um and again i think that's that's another interesting example if you're looking for a way to convince your friends that there is a symptom right Um, yeah it's another great it's another great way to look across time because you had the soldier in a boar in the boar wars um would complain of ability syndrome, which was, you know, had a particular uh, set of symptoms. Uh, if you were a soldier in the civil war, you would have the uh, Costa syndrome, which was a feeling of a weak heartbeat and um, pathological homesickness. Then, you know, so you can look across time and see the same. So no doubt these soldiers were troubled, right? They'd gone through something truly horrible and they were psychologically traumatized. But what happens next, how that psychological trauma is understood by the culture, understood by the individual, expressed by the individual is different. But then the soldier also, you know, comes up against these cultural notions of like, is stoicism the right way to handle? Um, is that the right way to heal from it? Is talking about it the right way to heal about it? Or is not talking about it the right way to heal about it? And again, I'm not saying that one of these things is, is the right way to go. But um, culture prescribes that. Like you go home to a culture that like the way to heal from PTSD is 
is to think of it as this thing that's happened in your brain that you talk to a psychiatrist about. Um, when in another time and place, even the early manifestations of PTSD after the Vietnam War were not about um, necessarily about the individual battlefield experience. They were about the sense of coming home and feeling like you just fought in an unjust war. Like that was where the psychiatrist of the time thought that the conflict came from. So completely different way of talking about it than the way we talk about it now, which is kind of like you're a soldier of one. It's not about the the value of the thing you did that's, or the conflicted nature of the service you performed. It's about this this moment of trauma on the battlefield yeah. that is that has messed up your brain. Well, so let, so okay. Let me ask you this question. So, in 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 some sense, there's a kind of medicalizing of sort of the human experience. So you made this. So we we use this more and more. Uh, and in a sense, this you you're, you trace this sort of you 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 look through the lens of globalization, and you say, look what's happening in Japan, look what's happening in China, look what's happening in in Africa, and so forth. Uh, and there's and there's a kind of medicalizing uh, of more and more parts of human experience. And then, you know, I pulled the, gave these examples in America. Now we can even, you know, the, the sort of throwing out stoicism or whatever is maybe a recent, uh, a recent uh, development. Um, so it would see, I'm just going to throw this out and let me see what you think. So this, this medicalizing of sort of human experience, it seems to me might be motivated from the desire uh for like psychology to be a science or like a hard science right so the 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 natural sciences are the hard sciences and they they uh you know they they have their experiments they're sort of artificial but they do the experiment they repeat it and they can say aha now we have a, a rule or a law and so forth and the problem with human beings right is that human psychology is that we just can't reproduce those kinds of experience experiments from what we can't create that completely artificial environment where we isolate the variables perfectly. We can't separate the culture from the sort of brain. Um, and so we get a, there's a sort of effort to make psychology more science than it is. And, and that in a sense might be what's behind the problem. You are absolutely right. This, um, this notion that we can sort of isolate the brain from culture and understand it in that way is the fundamental mistake here. And there is some great research that goes uh, outside of the, the, my focus on mental illness that I really want to steer you towards and steer your listeners towards. It's um, uh, it, There was a paper in Behavioral Brain Science that I wrote about a few years ago called The Weirdest People in the World. And basically it was a compendium of all the papers that had tried to replicate psychological studies in other cultures. So these are studies about, uh, you know, even, even studies like vision, notions of fairness, um, how we categorize nature, all these things. There's one population that, that almost all these studies have been done on to the, to the like almost 95%, they've been done on like college sophomores because that's the population these, these, these psychologists had to work with. And, and they, they, didn't have, they didn't really worry about that because what they were studying, they thought, was this fundamental, these fundamental things like the, the hardware of the brain. And you're right, I think they had sort of physics envy that they could, so it didn't matter whether it was a, a you know, you know, class of college sophomores that they were studying because the human brain is you know, sort of similar across the world. So of course, the results would be similar across the world. Well little surprise when they went and did these studies across the world, did these studies in other cultures, they found just remarkably different outcomes. And there was one population that was really an outlier. 
on almost all these studies. Like it was the, it was just way out on the bell curve, and it was us. It was <laughs> it was it was, and that was the, where they got the name for the paper. The weirdest people in the world is, uh, it's an acronym for uh, Western, uh, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And those cultures, which we are we are part of, tended to be sort of the weirdest in terms of their psychological perceptions of almost of, of almost everything. Um, so we're learning that you know that the, that the brain and and I really would steer you towards this uh, this research. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ara Nora Zion, um, uh, Steve Hine, and um, the other one who just came out with a book called "The Weirdest People in the World." His name is. Escaping me. Email moment. it to me, and I'll write it. Yes. Put it okay. In, in yeah, yeah. yeah. That's but it, it's 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 really um, important work because it goes to this fundamental thing of of just reconceiving the brain as as basically a cultural. It's it's where we play out culture and how and how we how we manifest culture. That's like the, the, the mind is it, it is learned to like let culture lead the dance and 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 we get so many benefits and so much sort of ambient knowledge from from that and it allows us to like go through these incredibly complex world if we just let culture sort of guide us and we're not making our own decisions we're like taking the cues from culture all the time and it affects everything including visual perception and, and things so um so you're exactly right that the, the pieces i have about mental illness and the way in which you know symptomology is affected by cultures is true for us all. It's true for how we perceive the world. Uh, we manifest the culture we live in. We do it unconsciously. It has tremendous benefits. Um, but the funny thing about the uh, you know the the Western mind is we also ha- lay over the story that that's not happening. That we are com- yeah. that we are uniquely individuals. That we're guiding we're guided by our own rationality and our own thoughts and our own beliefs. And and that's that story is fundamentally incorrect because we are we are at the same time we are promote that we have this idea in our head we are doing the exact opposite we are we are just as influenced by culture as anyone else in the world and it's hugely important in, in terms of almost all psychological states from how we you know how we think about the world how we think about our religious beliefs, how we think about um, our mental health sim- symptoms. So it goes across the board. All right. So, so Ethan Waters, thank you very much for taking the time out to come onto my podcast. It, I, it's very interesting uh, for me. It was a great conversation. So the book, once again, is Crazy Like Us, uh, The Globalization of the American Psyche. It's, it was written a while ago, but it's still in print and it's still very relevant and, and worth reading. Uh, so I, I think it's an excellent book. I recommend it to everybody. Uh, and so let me also thank my listeners, uh, particularly those people in Sweden, Germany, and Ukraine who are apparently listening. And, and of course, all of my listeners in the great state of Texas, uh, thanks for listening. And so until next time, ciao.